I think there's a lot we can learn from the first six verses in the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to Sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons were with her two sons. They took them wives of the women of Moab, and the name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. And Malon and Kilian died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people, giving them bread. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return, because she heard how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So we said we're calling this advancing beyond your pain. All of us in living in this world have to deal sometimes with what we call unforeseen circumstances. That means there are some situations that just occur that you didn't prepare for. You certainly was recognized it was unplanned and nobody predicted it would occur. However, when unforeseen circumstances occur in your life, you have to deal with them. You've got to confront them. You've got to engage them. You have to determine what decisions are going to be made because if you decide to do nothing, you need to know indecision is still a decision. You have to make some kind of a judgment call. The book of Ruth is notable because of the women that are so prominent in this story. Most of the books of the Old Testament deal primarily with Men, but this one highlights the ladies, Ruth and Naomi. And I think it's a beautiful story, an image of how redemption came to this young lady, Ruth, and also of how our redemption comes to us. But I'm not going to deal so much with that as I want to deal with the movement from a problem to a solution. This occurred in the days of the judges. The judges were... People who succeeded Joshua. God led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The Bible says they dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years. Because of their unbelief, a generation died. Two people led them into the promised land by the name of Joshua and Caleb. Scripture says that as long as Joshua lived, the people served God. Then the scripture says as long as the elders who lived alongside Joshua were around, the people served God. But after they had the last funeral and they had buried the last elder, the scripture says the children of Israel began to follow other gods. In their disobedience, God raised up other nations that came against them. The children of Israel cried out to God and said, Lord, help us. We, we need some kind of assistance. So Judges chapter 2 verse 16 says God gave them judges to deliver them. So a judge was 
supernaturally empowered by God to deliver people from problems. And you know the story of people like Gideon. He was a mighty warrior. Yeah, somebody like Jephthah. He was born on the wrong side of the tracks, came from the wrong kind of a mother, but yet was empowered by the Holy Ghost to be a judge and a deliverer. How about Deborah? She was a woman, fierce, fiery, and a warrior. She led the men out into battle and delivered the children of Israel. Over and over again, the judges give us stories of people with power and supernatural things taking place. And it was during this period when the judges were ruling that this story here occurs. Now, it's interesting that even though the judges had power to deliver the children of Israel, they did not have power to prevent a famine. So that shows you that even though people are anointed to do great things for God, that does not mean they can prevent certain things from taking place. The famine came, a shortage of food, a lack of rain, whatever it was that caused the famine. The famine came hard upon the people, and it was during the famine that decisions had to be made. Famines are not new in the scripture. The Bible speaks of a famine regarding the hearing of the word of God. Sometimes people just don't listen to what God is saying. It's not that God isn't speaking. It's not that the Bible isn't being read. It's just that people turn a deaf ear to what God is trying to say. Sometimes it is a famine that has to do with food. The story of Abraham. God led him out of what today we know as modern day Iraq and as soon as he left and came into the land promised to him, a famine was there. Scripture says he was wealthy, cattle, silver, gold. I don't own any cattle, but I assume anybody that has a very large herd, you've got to have a lot of pasture land to feed them. And if they start starving, every one of them that dies, that's money that you're losing. Abraham had to make a decision. His decision was to go into Egypt. It wasn't the best decision. His wife nearly lost her life and ended up with another, another man. But nevertheless, he had to make a decision. He was forced into a decision because of the famine. But his son Isaac, when the famine came during his lifetime, he was ready to go to Egypt himself. But the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, whatever you do, do not go to Egypt. Told him so. But Jacob and Joseph dealt with a famine. One that was so bad that Jacob sent his sons to Egypt, not even knowing that his son Joseph was yet alive and had prepared provision for not only the people in Egypt, but all the nations in the surrounding countries. God had used this man to have provision for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So the famine came in every generation to every people, but yet all of these people had faith. All of these people loved God and all of them walked with God. But it's interesting. A famine can lead you to humble yourself to the point that you compromise certain virtues. There are people that say, there's certain things I would never do. Depends on what kind of famine it is. Yeah. Sometimes a famine can be a shortage of money, not only a shortage of food. There are a lot of people today walking the streets in red light districts, raised in very good homes. But because they maybe didn't have a particular kind of skill and several bad decisions led to other bad decisions. And now they're involved with doing things that they thought they would never do. Famine. 
Remember the story of the famine that came to Israel? And the scripture says life was so bad that the people were eating and selling donkeys' heads and doves' dung. Now, folks, we've all eaten different things in our lives, and we've eaten different kinds of foods, and I'm sure I have eaten things that would cause you to turn your nose up, and there are people around the world that eat things that I would never want to eat, but can you imagine life being so bad that daddy has to go down to the marketplace and stand in line not to receive government cheese, but dove's dung, the head of a donkey. What is dove's dung? That, that's the stuff that's left there when the bird flies away. A donkey's head, think of that. Such an animal, such a creature, my soul humiliated now and debased in my lifestyle that I have to stand in line and feed this to my children. This is what a famine does. It forces people to make decisions. Sometimes the decisions aren't the kind you would make under normal circumstances. And so here we have a man in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. The famine has come to the land and the father is a godly man and he's got to make a decision. I've got to be able to care for my family. What am I going to do? Now men have pride just like women do. And every man wants to take care of his family Sometimes if a man has to work two, three jobs, he'll do whatever he has to do if there's a bit of pride because he wants to be able to put food in the bellies of them babies and of his wife. Sometimes you move to another location where a job is, where food is, but the decisions we make, we have to think them through. This was a time of famine, and this was a godly man, and I'm glad this is a story about a godly family because God needs more of those in the body of Christ. Husbands, wives, children that serve the Lord. If you are the anchor in your family or the anchor in your home, then that means you very well may be the person holding everything together because of your faith in God. You may be the one that's despised by a lot of people in your family, but you also may be the peg that's holding that tent together because a lot of things would be falling apart. And I've seen this in many marriages where a woman or a man is married to someone who is not a Christian and it becomes a violent thing. It's not a nice thing. I remember a story of a Preacher, he says that when he was a little boy, his dad would get him up in the middle of the night, he and his brothers, and they'd have to drive across town uh, to one of the parishioners' house, and dad would always make them stay out in the driveway in the car. And, and said dad and some of the men would go into the house where this man was at because this, this man would come home drunk, and then he'd just begin to bounce his wife off of every wall in that house. And she'd have to come to church sometime with uh, big sunglasses on because she's got black eyes and everything like that. And so the, the men of the church had to go in there and, and try to break all of this up. Now, I don't know why they didn't do it, but they could have told her just move out and get into a safe location where you don't have to go through all of that. But she didn't want to leave. And you, you can't make folks go somewhere they don't want to go. And she would come to church. And every opportunity, pastor would say, 
Anybody have a prayer request? And that woman would stand up and say, I want you to pray for my husband. I want to see him saved. I'm believing God. He's going to change his life. And that's how she, she went years that way. When I say years, I mean years. Over and over again, people heard the same prayer request every week. And every week that husband would beat her. Well, after numerous years of this kind of a very violent relationship, the Husband knew his wife was getting ready to go to church. He hated when it was church night. And this was a revival week. She had been gone nearly every night. And, and, and she, she, she was in there dressing. She's getting ready to come out of that room. He's sitting at that kitchen table. He's got a pistol there on that table. And he, he's, he's loading it up with bullets. And that, that wife comes out of there. And, and he says to her, if you go to church tonight, I'll kill you. And, and that, that wife said to her husband, she said, a lot of years we've been together and we've been through a whole lot, whole lot of stuff. And she said, I'm going to tell you this. She said, if, if, if you shoot me, I'm going straight to heaven. But if you don't pull that trigger, I'm going to church. And she walked right out that door and went to the house of God. Well, sure enough, she got there to the church and meeting is going. People are praising and worshiping God. Maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I don't know how long into the meeting. There's some people coming in through the side door, go up to the platform, get the pastor and the pastor gets some other people. Suddenly they're running back and forth and they came through the service and got the wife said, we need to get you home as fast as we can. Something has happened. So they get all the way to the house. And when they walk in, she's expecting the tragedy and he's taking every liquor bottle and poured it upside down in that sink, poured out all the liquor, and he's down on the floor crying and screaming and repenting of his sins. And somebody that had come by, <clears throat> come by had come to the church to let them know. Folks, that, that man was transformed into a godly man just like that. It only takes a moment with God. You know. I hate the past and the history that was written in their marriage, but I praise God for the new story that was given. We don't know the history of Elimelech and Naomi. We don't know what kind of a man he was like, what kind of a woman she was like. The only thing we know is that this is a godly family now, and the reason we know that is because when the men finally died in Moab, the scripture says two of the daughter-in-laws daughter were told by Naomi, go back to your family. One took off and left her and went back to her gods. That means that she did not have her gods and worship her gods when she was with them. So they kept God central. Jehovah, Yahweh, was central in that family. And in the midst of the famine, this man says to his wife, Honey, I think we need to go to Moab. As much as this famine is hurting us, we can't retreat. We've got to go forward. We've got to start all over. We're going to Moab. And that's what they did. And ancient times weren't like today. You didn't call a U-Haul. You're talking mules, camels, walking, whatever material possession that you had, you took down there to Moab, and that's where they went, as the scripture says, and they, they dwelt there. And so that's a new beginning. But don't be afraid of new beginnings. The scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So if every new beginning you have, you have God with you in the beginning of that new beginning, you still create something. You still make something that's lasting, something that's permanent, something that's of value. Moab, of all the countries, why go 
to Moab. They're distant relatives. But God said of the Moabites, none of them could enter the tabernacle up to the 10th generation. Why? Because when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the Moabites did not come to assist them and help them. God said, you're not to have anything to do with the Moabites. But yet this man in the midst of a famine is saying to his family, we're going to Moab. What is the history of Moab? Or remember the story of Abraham? He was traveling with his nephew Lot. Scripture says that Lot and Abraham were having troubles because the ranchers, their hired hands were no longer getting along because the herds were getting so big and folks were arguing about the watering holes and about the pasture land and who's getting too much and who's getting too little. Abraham says to his nephew, look, it's better for us to part in peace and not be fighting. You go your direction. I'll go the opposite direction. Lot turned and looked out there in that wilderness and saw a piece of land that was absolutely beautiful. It looked like a well-watered garden. It was called Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot took his family and his cattle, headed that direction. Abraham went the opposite direction. The scripture says within a short time, Abraham, or excuse me, Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you need to know, folks, wherever you move and take your children, those are probably going to be the kind of people that they marry because you've got them around, those kind of people. Lot became one of the elders of the city, maybe the mayor. He was sitting in the gate of the city having power and authority. The place was wicked, though. Scripture says he was so wicked that the, the iniquity came up in the, the presence of God. And God said, I've got to judge this place because it's so full of sin. You said, what kind of sin? The kind of sin that even to this day carries the name of Sodom. Then the scripture tells us God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I've got to do something that I know is not going to make you too happy, but judgment is coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham immediately thought about his nephew and his family. He said, Lord, if there are 50 people in Sodom, would you spare them? He's negotiating, trying to get his family saved, trying to intercede for his family. God said, if there are 50 righteous people there, yes. I mean, he got it all the way down to 10 people. He said, Lord, there are 10 people. Would you spare them? God said, 10 people? Absolutely. But even with Lot's family, and even though Lot served God, according to the book of Peter, Lot's family didn't have 10 people in it that loved God and served him. So God sent an angel. The angel came walking through the city dressed like a man, looking like any one of us in here this evening. As he walked through the city, the men of Sodom, in that area, looked at him, lusted after him, and wanted to be with him. They went to Lot's house and stood outside the door and banged on it, said, there's a stranger in there, a foreigner from another country. Bring him out here to this crowd of men. We want to know him physically. Such lust, wickedness, sin. Lot said, you people don't even know what you're doing. But when it was all over, God told Lot through an angel, you get your family, you get out of here as quick as you can. He went to his sons-in-laws and 
daughters, they were in bed. He said, look, we got to get out of here. God's sending fire and brimstone. We got to get out of here as quick as we can. They looked at him and said, you're like a man that's dreaming. We're not going anywhere. They turned back over and went to sleep. Lot got his daughter, other two daughters, got his wife, and they started running out of the city. And God said to him, I'm telling you now, when you leave, I don't care what explosions you hear in the back. I don't care if you smell the brimstone. I don't care how many flames are belching forth and shooting over your head. Do not turn and look back. And Lot was running with his wife, and suddenly he noticed that he's running with his two daughters, and his wife is gone. I don't know why she turned back. I don't know. I just know that in the process of being saved, she was lost. The Bible says she became a pillar of salt. Just immediately, something in her wanted to turn back and look, and when she did, she was transformed. But here is Lot. He never bothered to look back. You say, why? Because he loved God more than his wife. Scripture says, he that doesn't hate mother, father, son, daughter, wife, husband more than me is not worthy of me. He refused to disobey God in order to get his wife. He headed for the hills. And when he got up there in the mountain, he and his two daughters sat down on the hilltop overlooking the plains and saw place where they lived on fire folks I can't imagine that everything you've known every person you've known all of it burning you can't do anything but weep and cry you're wondering where folks were at because not just Sodom but Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were destroyed because of the iniquity of that area but this is what I wanted to get to as they're up on the mountaintop the daughters are thinking to themselves There are no men around here to take care of us. And how are we going to preserve seed for our father? Mama's gone. Brother-in-laws are gone. So they said, we've got a good idea. You've got to be careful in the Bible when you run into these good ideas. Sarah thought she had a good idea with Hagar. Wasn't a good idea after all. The two daughters said, "Why why don't we get daddy drunk? On wine. And, and, then, and then while he's drunk with wine, one after the other, we'll go in and sleep with him. That's what they did. The Bible says that both of them conceived. One of them had a son named Amnon. The other had a son named Moab, who's the father of the Moabites at this time. Now think about that. Can you imagine being a dad and then waking up from a stupor and nine months later discovering you've been deceived like that by your own family? We hear all kinds of stories in America of abuse when it comes with the older on the younger. I wonder how many elderly people in this world are taken advantage of today by children grandchildren, by others. There's all kinds of sexual abuses and things like that in this nation. And when these children were born from circumstances they themselves did not create, how do you move beyond that kind of pain? How do you move beyond that kind of pain? He took his family and moved to Moab. He moved in the midst of a country that when the country told the story of their origin, people had to turn up their nose and just wonder how could anybody be so twisted. But have you ever lived in twisted circumstances before? 
Have you ever lived in a situation so bad that you wonder to yourself, oh my God, how in the world did I end up here of all places? Moab. And if you find yourself thinking today, how did I get just caught up and, and swallowed up in this quagmire of sin and bad habits and bad friends and things like that. You're in a Moab, but you don't have to stay there forever. That's the point of all of this. There are a lot of people who come through difficult times and they're still able to go forward. You don't have to move into retreat. You can advance. And I've said to people, I know your background is bad, and I know people have mistreated you, but listen, we can spend the rest of our lives talking about bad memories, or we can talk about a pleasant future. It all depends on what you desire to do. Jesus hung up there on the cross. He hadn't done anything wrong. He said, Father, forgive these soldiers. They don't know what they are doing. One of them said, truly, this was the Son of God. Can you imagine going to bed every night afterwards knowing that you're the one that helped drive the nail into the Savior? And that you, 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 you gambled over the Savior's clothing. And it's because of that Paul even said that he's a, he's a debtor to Christ. He knew what he had done to hurt Christians. So maybe today you might feel like there's some kind of Moab situation that you're living in. But folks, there's an answer. And it's God. There's an answer. Now, verse 2 introduces us to the characters of this book. Elimelech, his name means my God is king. Naomi means grace. Ruth is a name that means friend. Mahlon means sickness or illness. Killian is a name that means spent or exhausted. Orpah is a name that means the back of the neck. Scripture says in verse 3, Elimelech eventually died. Now, I can't imagine... Here's a woman been married for years. She's got two sons. This is a patriarchal world. There was no social security in ancient times, folks. That's a new venture that we have in this world today. You raised your kids to take care of you when you got old in ancient times. And up until 100 years ago, that's about how they did it here. You say, well, what, what's the, are there any advantages? Were there any advantages to that? Yes, it kept a lot of families together. Older people were less inclined to say to their kids, get out of my life. I don't need you. I'll never need you again. If they knew that when they got older, they were going to have to have somebody to take care of them when they got old. So it was a cycle. The people who didn't have children then had to depend on extended family members and cousins and nieces and nephews. So that kept people in a relationship where you had to talk with one another, even if you didn't like what other people were doing. Not so today. We live our lives so disconnected and divided from people. We're so self-sufficient that when Elimelech dies, we don't have to think about Naomi. But that is why the Bible says in the local church, when a widow is there and somebody's husband has passed away, that church look after that widow. That house needs shingling, somebody takes care of it. It needs painting, somebody works on it. Grass needs to be cut, somebody helps. If it's a young lady who's a widow, the scripture says she can't become a widow taken care of as long as she's young. She can get remarried, the Bible says. But somebody has to look out for her. I don't know how many years they were married. I have seen people who've been married a lot of years and then lose their spouse and some people have been married so long they can't remember what it is to not be married. 
They've had the name of their spouse so long, they don't know what it is to just have their name again. Verse 4 says, her sons took women out of Moab, married them, and they lived there 10 years. Then they died. Two more heartaches. One funeral for the husband, two more funerals for the sons. Orpah is thinking her life is going in the wrong direction. Please don't call me gracious or grace. She says, you need to call me bitter because I'm coming back empty. I've lost everything. See, that, that's, that's what happens in this. How, how do you pick yourself up off the ground when all of this is just happening, you know? The ground gives way, the roof collapses, the walls are caving in, everything's falling apart. But she hears, back where she's from, God is visiting the people. Now that's the spark. When you hear that God is at work, God is speaking, God is changing lives. Suddenly you're thinking to yourself, okay, if it's really true, could it really be true? I've got to be there. Why, why sit here in the midst of these circumstances if I can go back to where God is? I've seen many families change like that. Mm-hmm. Alcohol wrecking their lives, adultery wrecking people's lives, all kinds of sins destroying people. And people have looked in every direction, can't find an answer, and suddenly they think, you know what? We need to find God. I've tried everything. And it just seems like my compass has me going in wrong directions, and I'm lost. I don't know where to go. I get advice from my friends, but my friends don't know anything, and, and they think they know everything, but I'm doing what they tell me to do, and my life is still out of sync with what God wants me to do. So what do I do? You better go where God is at. You better go where God has a visitation in process. Naomi calls her two daughter-in-laws, and she says, Orpah, Ruth, look, I'm too old to have more kids, and even if I could have more sons, are you going to wait for them to get old enough for you to marry them? No, no, go back to your family. Go back to your family, and you can marry again. You're young enough. You can start all over again. This is what Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, and I'm telling you, Ruth was probably offended that Naomi said this. Ruth said to her, what, what are you talking about? You are my mother. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. And your God will be my God. I'm going with you. Orpah, on the other hand. I mean, Naomi's telling that story about going back home and telling them they should go back to their family members and get remarried. I mean, she'd barely finished the first sentence and Orpah was running for the corner of the tent. She's tossing clothes in a bag and in a suitcase. She's loading up the camel. And I mean, before Naomi could even be finished, Naomi's looking at the back of Orpah's neck because she's galloping away. But Ruth never left. It was a woman that stuck with her mother-in-law. And according to the scripture, it says they made their way back home. Just hearing the good news about God doing something gives purpose to a person's life. Mm -hmm. Gives you a reason to live. It adds hope to you because you realize if God really is visiting a place and talking to people and lives are being changed, it's worth it to make the long trip back home. But I'll be honest, I don't want to be in any place where God is not there. No, no. I've been in churches. I've been in places where there was no presence of God. 
And the only thing I've wanted to do with that place was saturated with my absence. I wanted to be in any other location other than there. But if God is there, I want to be right in the middle of it, hearing what God has to say to me. And you never know what God will say to you. Christ came into this world in order to provide people with life. And when folks, folks are looking for hope, people are looking for some kind of direction for their lives, there's no place to go but back home to Christ. He offers the true bread, the living bread, the manna come down from heaven. We're not going to find it in a bottle. We're not going to find it in different relationships. We're not going to find it in all kinds of other things or drugs. We're not going to find it in just roaming from place to place. We're not going to find it out in a, in a place where we're just going to go out and hang out and dance all night long. We're going to find it in the arms and in the sacred, holy embrace of the Savior. He's the one that says he cares about us. People make all kinds of empty promises. But you know as well as I do, empty promises are still empty. They don't fulfill. No. But wherever God is, lives are changed. I'll close with this. There was a gentleman who went to Christ for Nations Bible College down in Dallas, Texas. Many years ago, he, he was from Russia. And even though he was immigrant and he was going to the school, when he graduated, he didn't have a desire to stay here in America. He felt like he was supposed to go back to Russia. That's where he honestly believed he was called. So he did. He went back, and this was sometime after they had that big Chernobyl incident, that nuclear problem, whatever that was. And, and so he was living in the largest city closest to that place, Kiev, Russia. He knew God wanted him to do a work, so he, he, he started praying about what to do. And he had brought back from America with him a water purifier. So he had this water purifier hooked up in his house, and he started inviting people over to Bible study. He knew all the water in the rivers and streams were contaminated, so he told the handful of people coming to Bible study, he said, look, there's no sense in you folks, you know, not having good, clean water. He said, I've got a purifier. At least let me give you some of the water that I have. So he did. They filled up their bottles, and week after week, people were bringing their bottles. He'd teach the scriptures. People's lives were being changed. Well, in the course of time, more and more people were hearing about this one man had a water purifier. So you had people that were coming out to the Bible study, not because they cared about God, but because they wanted clean water. But in the process, as they were hearing the word of God taught, their hearts were being illuminated by the word. They were falling in love with God, so they were no longer coming for the water. They were not coming for God. He had so many people coming that he said, maybe on the other side of the city, I should start another Bible study. So he ordered another purifier from America. That's what he did. Pretty soon, he had five different Bible studies going. He said, got so many people, might as well just start one big church. He started a big church. What do you think he named it? Living Water. Living Water. All of that started because a man believed that God was leading him, and then all of these people were coming because they believed that God was visiting that area. See, that's where I want to be. I want to be wherever God is. Yep. I want to be where God is speaking, where God is moving, where God loves his people, and where the people are loving God. That's the key. Yeah. Let's stand. Let's stand. Where is our heart and what is on our heart? Maybe tonight you may be in some kind of a Moab situation, but you can advance beyond that. Do not be like people who get caught up in the past and their memories bring them so much pain that they can't focus on the future. See, 
It could be a famine. Maybe you're passing through a famine, just a time of lack, just one problem after another, just gobbling up your resources and your finances. Folks, you still have to serve God. One thing about a famine, and I'll tell you this, a famine will always force you to make a decision. Yeah, because if you're hungry, you're going to have to do something. Famines will always force you to make a decision. Maybe it's not a famine, though. Maybe it's just a matter of a situation like Moab. You say, this, this whole thing, I, I, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm stuck. I'm trapped. Everything is going in the wrong direction. How in the world do I get out of this? I've got a broken heart, broken relationship, one bad one after another, one terrible thing after another. Go from job to job to job to job to job, whatever it might be. I mean, you don't have to live in Moab. God has always visited people. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. God is visiting you and visiting me right now. We just have to hear what he's saying and say, Lord, I'm ready to go to Bethlehem, the house of bread. No sense in me sitting here being empty and lonely. God is the only one that can supply whatever is lacking inside of your life. If there's a void there and you're just not happy with your life, God's the only one that can feel that. Nobody else can do that. We can all sit down and pray and talk and laugh and encourage one another. But when it's all over, I've got to go back to my house with my wife, and it's just going to be us alone. You've got to go back to your house. It's just going to be you alone. You've got to go back to your place. It'll just be you. You've got to walk through this with God on your own. So let's take a few moments and just worship God. Thank God for being so wonderful. Thank God for bring, being a deliverer. Father, we love